But Exodus chapter 7, I'll be reading from verses 1 to 13, reading from the NIV version. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's great to be here. Have your Bibles open as we continue our time in the book of Exodus. You're here for the first time. It's great to have you here, and we'd love to welcome you. Make yourself known afterwards. But let's pray and ask God to help us today. Heavenly Father, we we ask now that you will work in us. Lord, teach us. But most of all, Father, we pray that you will tender our hearts. Lord, may we not have hearts of stone. Lord, may we not have hard hearts. But Father, give us hearts of flesh. Give us ears to hear and to listen. Lord, may we not be stubborn, but to listen to who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, growing up, I, I grew up outside of Parks, about 10 k's outside the little town of Parks. And we grew up on a property out there. I spent many years um, growing up out there. And, and I loved it. It was a place of excitement. It was a place of adventure. It was a place where I just had fun as a 10-year-old boy and as a teenager, you know, on bikes. And one of the things that we had at home was that on the boundary of where we lived, about 20 metres from our back door of our house, there was this creek. It was called the Billabong Creek. It was a place where I swam. It was a place where you jumped out of trees. It was a place where I made boats. And it was a really a time in life where I really enjoyed it. It was, a, it was, a, a, it was an exciting place to be as a kid, for, especially for a boy. I loved it. But also, there's one thing about having a creek out the back of your place. In the middle of summer or leading up to summer, guess what sort of tends to come out? Snakes. And so my mum is one of those, you know, you freak out, a snake. But, you know, there was king brown snakes, you know. There was red belly black snake. Now, it's called a red belly black because it's black on the outside, but on its belly it's red. And you had the, the, the tiger snake. It was a feisty snake. So you have all these snakes that, you know, occasionally would come through our backyard and go down to the creek to get some water. Now, as Aussies living here in Australia, we, we should be pretty proud of our snakes because 20 out of the most 25 venomous snakes are here in Australia. 
How good is that? Like as Aussies, we, uh, we can, something we can be proud of. We have the top, well, not the top 20, but 20 out of 25 of the most venomous, and we have the number one venomous snake in the world. It's the, in, it's the inland Taipan. It's the number one venomous snake in the world. It is so venomous that in one bite, it could kill over 250,000 mice. In one bite, one venom. Now, now, I don't know what God's doing then when he made that, because you think about it, how's he going to fit, how's that snake going to fit 250,000 mice in its mouth at once? But that's how venomous the inland Taipan is. Like, it's, it's something we can be very proud of as Aussies. But why snakes? Why snakes today? It's, why are snakes important? You know, we come to a passage that mentions snakes, but not only does it mention snakes, but it mentions hard hearts. Why mention hard hearts again? Why mention snakes? Because as we come to Exodus 7, it's sort of this, we can easily just brush over it. Because Hollywood and the pictures and the kids' storybooks, we just want to get to the plagues. We want to get to the excitement. We want to get to Pharaoh's army being swallowed up in the ocean. We can't wait to get to that. But actually, these first 13 verses of chapter 7 are actually, they're quite central to the book of Exodus, it's so easy to just jump over and get to the next plague. Who doesn't want to see the Nile River turned into blood? But here, what's so important about the snakes? What's so important about the hard hearts? Well, it's so central because the book of Exodus wants to ask, it asks one question, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? It's that one question it wants to ask. And the book of Exodus is about making God known. God is making himself known to us. And it's a central question. And there's a battle that is just about to take place. There's a battle that takes place in verse 8 to 13. There's a battle that's about to take place that asks a very deep question that each one of us in this room needs to face. And the question is, who is the one true God? Who is the one true God of this world? Who is the one who really, truly is ruling and reigning over this cosmos? See, in today's passage, it's a battle of whose will. It's a battle of whose will will really come to pass. See, Pharaoh's like, no, my will is the Israelites stay here. See, a hard heart says, no, it's my will. My will, you know, as what is in heaven, be it here on earth. Well, actually... What it is here on earth may it be in heaven. You know, we, we pray, Lord, may your will be done as it is on heaven as it is in earth. But as, as a hard heart, as, as rebel sinners, we go, no, 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 we want our wills to happen here, so that's what happens in heaven. We, if, we, if we really think honestly about this question, or if we really dig deep, we have to be really honest with ourselves. We, we so often play God. That's what Pharaoh's doing. He's saying, I'm, I'm divine. But, here we go, but before we get to sort of this question of what do snakes and hard hearts reveal in Exodus 7. So we're going to see four things are revealed here about hard hearts and snakes. What does it reveal to us? But before we do that, I think it's, it's good just to, to stop for a moment and think about this hard heart for a moment. It's a big question because sometimes we think, is it fair? What's going on here? Because there's this probing thing that arises in the book of Exodus. It says in chapter 7, Pharaoh's heart became hard. In chapter 8, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says in chapter 7 and, and chapter 9, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's, it's hard, isn't it, sometimes as, as humans to try and get our mind in God and think, oh, I'm really confused by that. Is that fair? Well, we're not going to go into a big discussion about it today, but I'm going to sum it up in a couple of sentences by someone else. I think Tim Chester in that book he's done on Exodus helps us really think about this. 
Because Pharaoh, his heart's already hard, but yet he hardens his own heart, and yet God hardens it. And so here's what Tim Chester says. He says, Pharaoh refuses to listen because Pharaoh hardens his heart. But it's also true that Pharaoh refuses to listen because Yahweh, the Lord, hardens Pharaoh's heart. We have to take both of these perspectives seriously. Pharaoh determines Pharaoh's actions, and God determines his actions. Or to put it another way, Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God had freely chosen that he would do. It's a tough one to get our head around. We may not get our head around it, but we we also reminded that the Lord opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. See, hard hearts are stubborn hearts. There's something about hard hearts, they don't listen. Have you seen a stubborn person? And, And you try to explain something and it's like, no. That's not right. Hard hearts are filled with pride. Hard hearts are arrogant. Hard hearts overthrow reason. But as we come to today's text, what does Exodus 7 reveal to us? What are these, these snakes, what are these hard hearts, this hard heart reveal? Here's the first thing, it's point one of four, God's power. It actually reveals God's power. We see God's power throughout this passage in verses 2 to 5 especially to begin with because what does God do? God tells us exactly what's going to happen and what do we do as we read the rest of the book? It happens. Have a look at verse 2. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with a mighty act of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So how do we know that God's powerful? How do we know here in this passage that snakes and hard hearts reveal? It shows us that God's powerful. It reveals God's power that what he says will really happen. But we actually also see his power in verses 8 to 13 as well. Have a look at verse 9. When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. Now that's pretty amazing. That's a miracle, right? A miracle is something that it's, it's, we can't logically bring it about. Like We can't do it. And, and yet here is a miracle that's going to happen is that this staff that Aaron has, it's going to, he's going to drop it and lay it down. It's going to become a snake. It's going to become living. It's going to be full. And what happens to so Aaron and Moses? Well, they step out. They, they go and they see Pharaoh and they put the staff down and it, it's a snake. What a sight before the most powerful man in the world. And, and it's, a, it's a miracle, right? It's a miracle. It's an act of God. And then... Pharaoh's like, oh, okay. And, and he summons his wise men, he summons his sorcerers, he summons, you know, he summons the people that he needs here. And what happens is each one of them throws down a staff and it becomes a snake. Now, I wonder if you're Moses and Aaron at this point and you think, oh, man, there's more of them. But Aaron's staff that's a snake now swallows and engulfs all the other snakes. It's a scene of power. But why snakes? Why snakes? Well, have a listen to this. When, when, when the Pharaoh first ascended the throne of Egypt, he would take the royal crown and say this. So for us, you know, we're proud. We've got Aussies, we've got snakes. They're just, you know, brown snakes, king snakes. Like, but that, that's, that's all it is, really. But, but in the 
ancient world, snakes had, they, they were seen differently. Have a listen to this. As a pharaoh would ascend to the throne, he would say, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. See, the, the snakes were, they were in awe of them. They feared them, but yet at the same time, let us be powerful and leaders of spirits. There's, there's this sense of authority and sovereignty and magic. But check out the image on the screen. I, I want to share this image on the screen. Now, that's um, Tutankhamun. Now, he, he, he was a pharaoh from about 13... Well, 1333 BC through to 1323 BC. He's famous. Like, like we, we've heard of Tutankhamun. But I, I want you to have a close look at that image. It's not too, uh, not like that obvious, but what's on the top of his head? It's a cobra. It's a snake. It's telling us something. Because, see, snakes were a symbol of power and sovereignty. As John Currie concludes, the serpent crested diadem theodom of pharaoh symbolized all the power sovereignty and magic with which the gods endured the king so what's just taken place isn't just a small little show it's it's a very big moment where the egyptians who were so proud of their snakes yet so fearful of them and yet so that symbolise such power and sovereignty and magic have just been consumed by one snake. Now, surely you and me in this room would be moved by that. We'd listen, wouldn't we? But Pharaoh's heart gets harder and he's like, no. It's a battle of whose will will really come to pass. No, 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 I'm not still letting my people go. Who really is the one true God? See, it's a battle of the will. Whose will will really come to pass? Pharaoh hardens his heart and he still will not listen. And so what happens, the snakes, they're swallowed up. See here, one snake swallows up all the other snakes, but then in Exodus chapter 15, we are reminded that the Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptian army. See here, we have a little taste, really. Pharaoh's, he's still hard at heart. I'm not going to listen to you, God. And yet he's getting a foretaste of what really is going to take place at the Red Sea. This battle, there's a real battle going on. Because, see, there's questions of this text that I, I think conservative evangelicals will try and we try to explain how did Pharaoh's sorcerers make the sticks into snakes? Like, and so we'll use logic and we'll go, well, they tricked the people. It's like a magic show. In, in the ancient world, they could do it with cobras. They even do it today that they would they'd put their fingers somewhere on their neck and they'd paralyze the snakes so it would go straight and they'd lay it down on the ground, they'd give it a bit of a shake and it would come to life. Is that what's happening here? Is it just, they're just magicians? Well, we, you could say that, but I, I think it's actually more than that. I think it's actually a picture that reminds us of the real battle. As Ephesians says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I think here in a moment, we're having a taste and being reminded of the demonic we're being reminded of the reality of sin we're reminded that it's not flesh and blood but it's actually something bigger going on here here is God and here is Satan 
There's something big going on here that's being laid down for us to really know who is powerful, and God is powerful. But it's also, here's a reminder for us that sometimes signs and miracles aren't always from God. Sometimes we're quick to buy in on miracles, we're quick to buy in on signs. But remember what Jesus says in the New Testament when he he says in, in Matthew chapter 11, I think it is, he says, Many will come in my name doing miracles and signs, and when the last days come, I'll say goodbye, I don't know you. See, there is a, there's a real reality. We do need to listen to God well. But see, signs and miracles aren't going <laughs> to... Do, do, do you notice that sometimes hard hearts will not listen to them? But at the same time, we need to make sure that not every sign and miracle is from God, and so therefore we need to listen to God well. We need the people who listen to him well, and today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because see, really, we would imagine that Pharaoh's response after seeing the snakes all swallowed up, surely it would have been to step down off his throne and to bend his knee in awe and praise of the one true God. And yet his heart is hardened and he's unable and he's stubborn and his pride is too great because no, my will will be done here. His sin has deceived him and he wants nothing of the part of no longer being sovereign over his own life. He wants to be his own God. But I want to ask the question today of everyone in this room, where do you see Pharaoh in your life? Now you may not be that hard of heart, you may not be the, the ruler of a great nation, but I wonder where do you see Pharaoh in your life? Where is your heart hard towards God and his word? Because see, here we're reminded miracles and signs don't always mean people are going to believe. Where is your heart towards God and his word today? Sometimes we ask the question is, why should God meddle in my affairs? Why should God have the first say in my life today? Sometimes as Christians, we, we, we'll push the boundaries, won't we? How far? You might be a young adult with, with a boyfriend and girlfriend, and you, and you ask the question, well, how far can I go with my girlfriend before it really becomes sex? Or maybe you think, well, how far can I really push my tax return? before it's lying and cheating? Or how far can I, on, on my construction site or in my business, how far can I push the work health and safety so it's grey enough, but it's starting to get a bit too grey? Or we start to think, you know, we start to question as Christians, well, why should I deny what I'm feeling inside? Surely that feeling is right. Surely it means God wants me to go and do this. Hard hearts are stubborn. They don't listen. Hard hearts don't listen. You see it in the hard-hearted middle-aged man whose friends have got around him and said, mate, you need to be very careful with this relationship with another woman that's not your wife. And they pull them up and say, hey, mate, you need to be really careful here. And he says, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's safe. It's totally safe. It'll be okay. Nothing's going to happen. Hard of hearing. Won't listen. And what happens eventually is he commits adultery and he's actually quite fine with it. It's, it's, it's just had to happen. Me and my wife just weren't getting on and so this happened. And yet it leaves a trail of destruction in his path. He has a ruined marriage, his kids, it affects their kids. But not only does it not only just affect his kids and his previous wife, it, it actually tears through a church and, and ruins the church family. It, it just has these ripple effects. Or the pride of a young woman who is expecting way too much of her new husband. Saying, I expect you to be changed and to look like this. We're newly married. Surely, 
Surely you should conform to my, exactly who I am and my culture and my style. Hard hearts. But oh, or maybe, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're here, you don't follow Jesus. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. This is the place where you can ask all your questions. It's a place where you can really dig into who God is. And you might be here asking that same question today as Pharaoh is, who is God that I should obey him? That's a good question to ask. Who is Jesus that I should give up my life to follow him? Can I ask you to hang in there for the next month? Come back next week and the week after and see who the Lord really is. As we dig deeper into the plagues and the signs that follow. For those hearts who are tender, there is mercy. What do snakes and hard hearts reveal? Well, it reveals God's power, but secondly, it reveals God's mercy and justice. See, for those hearts who are tender, there is mercy and there is justice. See, the outcome was never in doubt. But it's here to reveal something because God, Yahweh, like if we really go, this is the God of the Bible, God could have in chapter 7 completely wiped out the Egyptians and judged them and it'd be done. So why all these plagues that are going to follow? Because he needs to bring justice. We said that God is a God of justice. He brings judgment upon this nation for, for their oppression and their affliction of these people. But at the same time, he takes 10 plagues after this. Or 11 or 12, however we want to name a number of them. But see, he sends those plagues to let us know who he is. That's his mercy, see? Later, Pharaoh's heart is cracked. Later on, Pharaoh says, get away, Moses. Let them go. And verse 5, I think it reveals God's mercy. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Now, that's a merciful God saying, here, you need to know who I am. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. Look, Yahweh is greatly concerned that he brings judgment. He is a God of justice. And through that judgment, he reveals his mercy to his people. He shows compassion and forgiveness. That those who would humble themselves and listen, he would rescue and give life. And we see God's love for this people and he shows it by saving them. But see, here's the most beautiful thing of this story. Like, but not only does Yahweh rescue the Egyptians, who else does he rescue? He rescues other Egyptians. Now, not the whole nation, but other Egyptians find refuge in him. See, God is a God of mercy and justice. And when we come to the cross of Christ, we see mercy and justice combined. We see the justice of God pouring down the retribute, the wrath of himself upon Jesus. The judgment that should have been ours for our sin and our rottenness. The way that we've rebuilt and said, no God, it's my will will be done, not yours. That's sin. And so he pours that justice on his son. But at the same time, as he does that, he's showing us mercy and forgiveness. What a great God. Because see, for you and me, our Western mindset can't put the two together of judgment and mercy. But I want to ask the question, have you experienced God's mercy today? Have you experienced the, the, the mercy of a God who poured out his just judgment on his son so that you could have life? So trust in Jesus today. Okay, so what do, what do snakes, what do hard hearts have to do here? What does it reveal? Well, it reveals God's power. It reveals his mercy and his justice. 
But here it is, this side of the cross, I think also reveals a couple of other things to us as well. Two things to go. The first one is Christ isn't finished with you yet. Christ isn't finished with you yet. I love verse 6. This old man Moses, I think as we take this journey with Moses, we start to see that Moses, the older he gets, the more tender he has got. His heart has become more tender and soft. Before we have this picture of him arguing with God, God, you cannot send me, I'm not able, I'm a nobody. And he argues with God. But have a look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. What a picture. And he goes out, they go to Pharaoh. And I love what D.L. Moody, the evangelist of the 19th century, says about this text. Have a look on the screen. It's going to come up. Here's what he said about this man, Moses. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody. He he grew up, right, in the the most powerful man's palace. He, He grew up thinking he was somebody for 40 years. Then in the desert... He learnt that he was a nobody and then 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. See, for 40 years, Moses was in Pharaoh's palace. For the next 40 years, he's in the wilderness where God is humbling him and working in him in the wilderness so that now, after the age of 80, God's going to use a nobody. Have a look at verse 7. Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. You know, sometimes 75-year-olds, you might say, hey, my best years are behind us. No, your best years lie ahead. You know, we think of, you know, if you're in the first 30 of your life, like probably we're not going to live to 120, right? But if we go to that first 30, it might be 20 to 25. Now, when you're 20 to 25, you... You think you are somebody. You think you know everything. You think you know everything political. You think you know everything medical. And you, you're, you're chasing a career and a path where you're trying to make something of yourself. But then you get to that second third and you start to have kids or you start to get married or you stay single and you start to have that battle going on going, I'm really nobody, really, am I? When I compare myself to Elon Musk. But then the last, two th- the last third is it's, we really start to realise we are nobody who's used by God. So here's an encouragement for those who are uh, you know, in that bracket over 60. How good it is that God uses you. He uses people like you. There's, there's nothing like he uses people of all ages. He's not done with us yet. See, what, what I've found in ministry is, is two things happen when people get to 70 or 80. I speak with men. They either, as Christian men, they become bitter and grumpy and angry with the world. They become stubborn and they become hard of hearing. That happens because they've taken their eyes off Jesus. The whole world is against them. Things didn't plan out how they wanted. They didn't get the name that they wanted as a man. But can I tell you, there's something so beautiful about a 75-year-old man who's becoming more tender, more gracious, more compassionate as they fall more in love with Jesus. There's something beautiful about that. This week I prayed with an 85-year-old in my office. I prayed that he would finish the race well. Praying that his eyes would not be taken off the end. See, Paul says it's a marathon. And I prayed that he would finish the race well. Not giving up. See, chapter 7 is a humbling chapter for us. 
that God can do with somebody who found out he was a nobody. I, um, there's a man who I've done ministry with before. He's an elderly man. He was an elder. He was a man who'd done ministry at a church for years, decades. Got cancer, had to retire, but he moved to a small country town where we were at. And you know, he's got Parkinson, he's ageing, his memory's not as good as it used to be, and he's in his, he's in his mid-70s. And yet this man, he goes down and he plays carpet bowls. I don't know why they do it now because of COVID, but he would go down and he'd play carpet bowls in one of the clubs with people. And yet, in a way, Christ hasn't finished with him yet because what this man would do is at Christmas time he'd invite <coughs> that group of carpet bowling people around. He'd say, can you come over to my place? I'll give you a feed and I'm going to give you a devotion of what Christmas is all about. See, Christ isn't finished with us yet. Because see, well, that's number four, we're Christ's ambassadors. That's what we are. We're, we're Christ's ambassadors. See, it's through Moses, it's, it's the... It's through Moses that the most powerful man in the known world will be confronted with God, the one true God, with his word and his action. Have a look at verse 1. See, I have made you like God. Now the English translation adds the like there to just help smooth it over for us, and it's good. But, but it's, it's actually saying, I have made you to be God to Pharaoh. To be God to Pharaoh. Now, he's not saying that Moses is God. He's not saying that Moses, in essence, is God. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is that you will be God to Pharaoh. Like later on in the book of Exodus, the priests represent God to the people. See, our sin, our will of going, I want my will to take place in the Garden of Eden caused a big problem for us because in Genesis chapter 2, we were created in God's image. We were in his garden. He was with us and we were, going to, we were to have dominion over the whole world. We were to take God to the world. But we said, nah, my will be done. We want our will. And so here's a taste of God re-establishing the Garden of Eden. Here's a taste of, of us going back to what it's meant to be. And Moses is going to be like God to Moses. Pharaoh is going to encounter the living God through Moses. And see, as, as we come, uh, you know, 1,500 years after Moses, we come to this point where Jesus is born and, and he's both God and both man. And God himself comes and he makes himself known to us who dies on a cross for us who died and who was crucified so that we would be reconciled to him, that we could encounter the living God, where justice and mercy met. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he says to his followers, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, go and make disciples of nations. I want you to grab your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians for a moment. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to look at verse verse 20 because as we go through 2 Corinthians chapter 5 there's this real it's an amazing picture that individuals have been reconciled to God that we've been made a new creation that on the and we've been made a new creation on the basis of Christ's exchange his righteousness is now ours and therefore this power leads us as followers of him to become sacrificial ministers of reconciliation there's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that I love and I want it to be deeply embedded in the life and the culture of Gabi, and that is that Christ's love compels us to go and have a look at verse 20 there we are therefore Christ's ambassadors 
as though God were making his appeal through us. God's making his appeal to this world through you and me. See, a messenger is a, a, an ambassador is a messenger. It's a representative. They don't speak on behalf of their own name. They speak on behalf of someone else. They don't act with their own authority. They don't communicate what they want to communicate, but they share what they've been sent to do. See, I'm not saved. See, the book of Exodus reminds each of us that we are not saved for ourselves, but we are saved so that a world will know God. See, it makes that, that shallow theology of this idea that I'm saved just so I can get to heaven and I'm just going to wait in between. No, the book of Exodus reminds us that you've been saved to serve God, to make Him known. You've been placed here in Sydney. You've been placed in this suburb to be Christ's representatives. And he's making his appeal through us. See, the only encounter some people are going to have with a living God is through you at a morning tea table where you sit down and talk to them. The only encounter some people are going to have with the living God is over the soccer field where you coach their kids. So some people, the only encounter they're ever going to have with God is through you loving them in a nursing home. So you may be in your first third of your life. You may be in your second third. You may be in your third third. Whatever it is, we are, we're, we're here to be representatives of Christ. But that's tough. As we go out and as we share Jesus, as we live a life that is holy and set apart, that displays his glory, people will ask questions. But at the same time, it's going to be tough. Why? Because we've got hard hearts. Pharaoh had a hard heart, and no matter how many signs things happened, he, he, he refused. See, not only does the gospel save sinners, so the gospel has the power to save, but it also confirms sinners in their sin. In fact, Pharaoh banishes Moses. You know, later on, as all this happens, what does Pharaoh do? He says, get out of my sight, Moses. And in that moment, what he's saying is banishing God. I want nothing to do with you, God. And we live in a world where people are happy to go to hell. That's because they don't want God. See, some will listen and others will not. Some will listen and others will not. Hard hearts will not listen, but we press on for Jesus because God breaks down hard hearts. See, we had hearts of stone, didn't we? We had hard hearts of stone where we would not listen, and yet God cracked your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. So let's buckle up and let's be reminded that we are here so that the world will encounter Jesus. See, the, the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt to become a city on a hill so that the nations would see and encounter God. And we are a light to this world here as well. See, we're in a comfortable building and it's easy for us just to think we're here for that but actually we're here for more we're here so that people encounter God see we live in a world where there are unreached people groups how many unreached people groups are there in the world there is nearly 7,000 unreached people groups in this world who have less than 2% of evangelical Christians in them there is a world that does not know God or know Jesus so may we take it to them take them to this city take it to the world around us I love the words of Jim Elliot, who went to the Ecuadorian Indians. Jim Elliot, he loved Jesus, he wanted to serve Jesus, and he wanted people to hear about him. And so he went to the Ecuadorian Indians to tell them about Jesus. But the very people he wanted to share it with killed him because their will was known. But later on, those Ecuadorians were saved because they encountered the living God. But Jim Elliot writes this in his journal. 
he writes this in his journal. He says, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me be a mile. Let me not be a mile post. Now, a mile post is just a kilometre post, you know, 20, 15, 10 kilometres to the next town. He says, don't let me be a mile post on a single road, but make me a fork. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or the other on facing Christ in me. May we be a church that's a fork. May we be people who are a fork in the road that on facing us, they go one way or the other on facing Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the people you placed in our lives who came and showed us Jesus. So, Father, today, may we not forget that, but, Lord, may we know of your power and your mercy and your justice, that you're not done with us, but you use us. Lord, may we be ambassadors for you in a world that desperately needs Jesus. Amen.